my big mistake here is that like I was just purely acting out of emotion and I feel like that's really, really dangerous. There's been some other times with it and I, I won't say if they are or are not crypto related or I might've got emotional and gotten into some things I didn't truly understand either. But every time I tend to act out of what I hear from someone else saying some emotional type of environment instead of sticking to my plan and sticking to more long-term strategic moves, it tends to go really sideways for me. This is James Schramko. James Schramko here. Welcome back to my podcast. This is episode 953. And today we're talking about biggest financial mistakes. I'm brought along my friend, Charlie Valho. Welcome, Charlie. Thanks for having me, James. I hope you haven't brought me on just because I've got the biggest financial mistakes. No, I brought you on because you've been yeah. concentrating on this topic for your own content. And as you know, I like to bring on guests who are interested in certain topics or specialize in certain topics or are passionate about topics to come and talk about stuff that's going well on their own environment and to sort of, uh, I guess, curate, aggregate, <laughs> consolidate here. I want to bring value for our audience. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't have that many financial mistakes. <laughs> of course, that's probably not true. We all have done them, but it's been a great discussion for you in your own environment. I wanted you to come along and share what you've discovered uh, people react to the most. Um, ideally, some of the things we talk about might prevent someone making a mistake. That's the purpose of this episode. And it is something that we've talked about in previous episodes with you. And I know you concentrate over at fullstackbusinessowner.com, where one of the reasons we have a business is so that we can actually have a wealthy life, whether we're taking money from the business and putting it outside the business, which is what I like to do. Sometimes it's to build the business up and make it strong and to sell that as a big once in a lifetime event, or maybe you do it a couple of times if you're a serious business builder, but so many lessons we've both had along the way. Yeah, absolutely. I'm in the same camp. Now, this topic actually came from, we did a little bit of like Facebook group chat in the full stack business owner community. And what was really interesting is a lot of people were very curious about like, well, what are the mistakes I've got to avoid along the way? I think it can be so helpful to people to just go, hey, you know, these are the ones that have cost me. You don't have to repeat them. It's optional. Some people like to learn through experience, but uh, sometimes if you can learn from others, it's much more advantageous. I think when it's money, it's way better to learn from others. And that's actually one of my secret formulas is I really try not to make too many mistakes. I know there's big business mantras out there, you know, like fail fast, fail often. And I hate that. I think it's terrible advice. Like why fail at all if you can avoid it? But um, part of the reason I've got all these books you can see starting to collect behind me is I've learned a lot of things from people who publish information. I have learned a lot from my clients when I was at Mercedes-Benz. I observe and understand what I can about other people's experiences. I'm inquisitive and I ask questions. And thankfully, it's plotted me a pretty good path. I'm very happy with where things are at. And I think a big part of it is, firstly, taking full responsibility for my journey through life. And secondly, dedicating some time and energy towards understanding what lies ahead so that I can navigate the obstacles with the least amount of uh, loss. And I know Warren Buffett likes to you know, preserve his money more so than even making money. Like some people, it's their financial setting. Don't lose money is setting number one. I think that's a strong setting. I like that setting. <laughs> <laughs> but we have lost money. I've lost money. You've lost money. Uh, we're going to share a couple of war stories today. I also want to say I am not 
in any way, shape or form, financial advisor, a plan or whatever. This is not wealth advice. I'm just sharing personal stories of things that I've observed along my journey in life when it comes to wealth, mistakes, etc. And I imagine it's similar for you, Charlie. Absolutely. I would actually find it interesting in an episode called Biggest Financial Mistakes, if anyone took this as advice to follow. I'd actually think that's probably not the idea or intent behind it. <laughs> I know. And, and, and sometimes, you know, the idea is, look, be aware of the traps. I, I remember um, Professor Cialdini, he published his book Influence as a warning to others, like how to prepare and defend against being influenced. So I think it's a great position to take in this case. Do you want to share a story, Charlie? Are you brave? All right. I'll, all right. I'll kick one off. I've got to do a business one first. I'll do, okay. some, I'll do a business one and then I'll do a like more wealth building related one. So uh, very early on when I um, started in business, I had a, a marketing agency and like after uh, like years of frustration, I finally cracked like a winning offer. Like I'd worked out something the market had actually kind of wanted. Now um, to give you, like I, I should set some parameters. Let's pretend my like marketing agency was doing about $10,000 a month at this time on retainers. Mm-hmm. We cracked this offer in the marketplace and we went from doing about $10,000 a month to about $70,000 a month in the space of, I'll say two or three months. Very, very quick. Now to unpack that a little bit further, it was just me and one other guy at that point when we were doing 10 grand a month and it was like, you know, a little small business. But then when you've got 70 grand worth of retainers to deliver, all of a sudden you need all these other things. And I was so excited to have, you know, found something people want. And I thought, well, I've got this, you know, I get paid up front. I can get paid and then work out how to deliver it. And I just created this massive, massive mess of saying yes to all this work and then having to like drastically hire people behind the scenes to actually deliver on it. Now, the thing that actually caught me out, and this is where it becomes particularly notable, is in order to get the team to be able to deliver the work that needed to be done, on my very limited experience at this point, I will mention as well, is I actually created a massive like cash vacuum. So in turn, what ended up happening, even though my revenue went up, I lost all the cash in my business and couldn't really even afford to pay myself for the following six months. So I actually had to live off my uh, partner's income for the following six months while the cash flow cycle actually caught up with it. Because uh, in agency land, and I'm sure you're aware of this one as well, James, is like the first few months with the client are the most expensive ones when you're doing all the onboarding and setup and a lot of the one-off tasks that don't come into the projects later on. And uh, again, through the naivety of experience in the attempt to make more money, I ended up not being able to pay myself for like six months plus. I just dug myself a very deep hole that I had to work my way out of. Ouch. How did you go with the relationship with your wife at this point? Did she have a loss of confidence in your business mission? Because this is something I do see between partners a lot and it can cause a lot of tension in the home. Well, I got very fortunate on this one. This is where Charlie is a little bit lucky is that um, he managed, he's got an accountant uh, wife yeah. So when I could explain what's happened and she understood it from a numbers perspective, she was like, ah, I see what you've done here. Like, I totally get it. I think if she perhaps didn't have that experience or knowledge within herself, she may have struggled with it more and more. But again, it's like even like second order consequences of this is like, I think that, that occurring actually led me to underinvest in the business and be like reserved ongoingly. So there was probably some opportunity cost on the back of it as well that come into play here. I call that capacity sabotage. It's um, 
because we have limited capacity to deliver, we sabotage our marketing efforts. Like, i.e., we don't go and get another customer because we know if we do, it's a massive headache to deliver and fulfill. So we sort of set our limit of according to our capacity to deliver, which is why a lot of the time I'm helping people build their capacity to deliver because if they can do that, now they only have a marketing challenge. Sounds like you're a great marketer and you're only limited by being able to put together the capacity to deliver and not knowing what your costs would be either. I mean, you were very quick to outsource, probably through necessity, if you had a skills shortage. There was no option. No option. <laughs> yeah. There was too much work. <laughs> I remember when I first sold a website, the first website I ever sold, I didn't know two critical things. One is I didn't know how to put a form on the website, and I knew I needed to have forms, and I didn't know how to get the website from my laptop onto the server. I didn't know how to point it to a domain and upload it via FTP and all that. So I had to figure it out along the way and I probably could have hired someone to help me with that and I didn't. So I was a little bit stressed about it, but I managed to figure it out, thankfully. But it's definitely, uh, it's real. It's good to reconnect with that sort of beginner situation where you don't know all the answers. So we've just heard a couple of examples where Charlie and myself didn't know all the answers when we went out to win the business. But you have to be prepared to invest in getting the solution so that you can deliver on the promise. Completely. And just to your point there, I'll ask you one back. Do you think a financial mistake many make is like not hiring? I've got a perfect financial mistake here that dovetails this. Yes, it's somewhere between not hiring and overhiring. And I'll explain what I mean by that. When I quit my job, it was 2008, I had a combination of affiliate marketing information product selling, and I'd taken on a couple of agency clients. So I'd I'd protected myself with a few different pillars of income. The CPA marketing that I was doing was really taking off. I I was up to five, six, seven, eight thousand dollars a day in ad spend on my Amex. And I was promoting primarily one offer. They had a second offer, but it wasn't as good. And this prime offer, I was using different advertising platforms. And this is 2008. I was using Facebook. I was using add-on media, click, saw. There was these buy-to-sell website banner ad things. There was- Buy-sell ads. Buy-sell ads. There was AdWords. Uh, Yeah, so Facebook, I mean, that was very early days for Facebook ads. It's a long time ago now. And there was a few other networks. But anyway, I had this big spreadsheet and I was spending a lot on ads. And then most days I was able to double my money or make a pretty healthy margin. Some days I'd balance it out. Occasionally I'd go negative and I would check it at two o'clock every day. A couple of challenges I had, one was someone, one day I woke up and someone had cloned all of my AdWords and running the exact same copy to the exact same offer. And it didn't, it basically watered down both of our results. That was annoying. The bigger problem I had was one day I ticked on the display network option, the banner ad option for Google, and it basically just went crazy. I outsold all the other CPA networks, not just the individuals, but the networks. And just overnight, I think I made $16,000 in sales in one day. Anyways, they started getting so many orders, they couldn't fulfill. And they got a really bad reputation. So they had people doing chargebacks because their order didn't come. They got a really negative reputation because they weren't delivering. People thought they were a scam because they'd ordered and didn't get their stuff. And they ended up collapsing. And so now I was basically caught with a big Amex bill for my ad spend and the commission checks stopped coming. And there was on a sort of a a lag, two to four weeks from when I made the sale to when I got paid. So I ended up having to carry about six weeks worth of advertising expenses, which I never got paid for. 
So that basically gave me a cash flow crunch coming into Christmas. So I remember it was Christmas. I had, you know, theoretically I had money coming in because I'd earned it and it just didn't come because they went broke. What we're talking about here is a few things. Firstly, I was single source dependent for most of that income. There was a lead time between when I spent the money and when I got paid back. And it wasn't enough. I didn't have enough other in my portfolio for it not to be annoying, right? So in the end, the rest of my business balanced out the cost. So I didn't go negative. I've never gone negative in a profit sense, but it did bottom me out for a month or so. And it was actually January 2009, I started my membership. And I'll pause there for a second because that's going to be my next financial mistake. And it relates to partnering with someone when I should have hired someone to do a short-term one-time thing. Instead, I partner with someone and ended up overpaying. So I don't know if you want me to develop that one now or come back to that. Well, we can't leave that one there. And I will say, you do see this one commonly. I see a lot of people that would, when they're in that beginner stage, is they partner because they perceive, I don't know, they want someone with them on the journey. Of course. I I, I don't know where it comes from. but Well, I, I know it comes from. It's a lonely, isolating mission, this entrepreneur thing. You're already in the 10% of the population who, who or 6% of the population who's suited to be an entrepreneur, right? You're stressed out and uncertain. It's nice when someone buddies along and you say, you know what, we would partners. The typical split is the 50-50 split. You and I have talked about this before, I feel, in the revenue share episodes. In the early days of my online journey, probably 2006, 2007, and as it turns out, 2009, I did 50-50 deals, but none of them really worked that well. And in this case, what had happened was I'd started selling mentoring 2008. And my first and greatest student was brilliant. And he was paying $700 a month for one-to-one attention from me. And he, he milked me, which he was entitled to do for all this knowledge on conversions and traffic. And uh, he applied it and he was getting huge results. He got amazing results. He was implementing everything. And I said to him, I need to set up a membership, but I'm not sure what platform to use or how we go about it. And he helped me out. He helped me choose a a membership platform. He helped me choose a billing solution. He helped me with the pre-sale page and connecting up the autoresponder waiting lists. I didn't have any team at this time. I think I had one support person part-time called Matt who used to answer tickets. That was it. And I maybe had an article writer. It's probably $10 an article back then. Anyway, that was it. That was the only support I had. So I didn't have any technical depth so I said, how about we do 50-50 on this thing? And you bring in clients and I bring in clients. And he said, yep, that's fine. Because, I mean, he was a super affiliate. He knew how to drive traffic. He could run paid ads. He was very precise. So we were able to set up the membership, which back then was called Superfast Results. And I started filling it. I filled it with the first cohort of people. And then I kept speaking at events and filling it. And then I was, we were selling some directly. And there was a few affiliates as well. The numbers back then uh, in 2009 we were making about $25,000 a month. We had $5,000 a month in affiliate fees and we split 10 grand each. That was the numbers. So this went on for about four years, Charlie. <laughs> so I sent half a million dollars, US dollars, over four years to my partner for helping me set up the membership. I answered about 80% to 85% of the questions. I brought in 99.99% of all members. And I was sending off half of the profit overseas for four years. In the end, 
I realized, I, you know what, if I just paid someone $10,000, I could have had all that stuff set up. And I realized I need to have independence in this one. So I said, would you like to buy the membership or would you sell your share to me? He said, well, I definitely don't want to buy it. It's no use to me. Of course it wasn't because he wasn't putting any members in and he wasn't answering the questions. <laughs> we we're all friends and everything. He's a nice guy, right? No gripes about that. But commercially, it just didn't make sense. It became out of balance. So what would you pay me for my share? And I, so I offered him a very generous amount. And at the time, my wife said, well, you're insane. That's way too much. I'm like, oh, look, I'm not greedy. I'm fair. I want to put an amount. I put the number and then I basically got, no, look, I'm just happy how it is. And I said, well, how about, why don't we just at least adjust the split? Why don't we make it 65-35? No. He's like, no, I'm just happy how it is. I said, what, what about 60-40? You know? And he's, no, I'm happy how it is. Anyway, there was no decision made. And after a couple of months, I just started my own community. And I left that one there. And within a few months, everyone had come across to my new community. And the old one basically got to the point where we just switched it off. And that was it. And now the interesting thing is the new metrics look like this. Back then, it was about $40,000 per month in with no affiliates and no partner. So I went from $10,000 a month to $40,000 a month. And this is the interesting thing, with no change in my actual workload, with no having to go and ask for permission or check in or meet regularly to talk about on how it's going to run. So I had total independence and four times the profit. Anyway, these are rough numbers and it was a long time ago. This is 10 years ago now. So that's my best recollection of it. But the big point here is the partnership tax. By leaning too heavily into a partnership and hoping that it would work out and not calling it early enough, I overpaid for too long and I should have called it earlier. So it probably cost me hundreds of thousands of dollars, but it was a huge lesson and investment and experience as I like to call a mistake. It's interesting that many of these seem to like lay up the next good thing, right? So this experience led ultimately to super fast business, I imagine, was the membership you started on the back of this. That one was called Fast Web Formula, which became super fast business, which is still uh, what's now James Schramko. <laughs> so it was one, two, three. This had four names, but essentially since the beginning of 2009 to now, I still have a recurring income with uh, hundreds of, said between 350 and 550 members since 2009. So it makes it a very consistent business model. It gave me an appreciation for the fact that I am more of a one-man wolf pack. I don't necessarily need, well, I don't need 50-50 partners, except for marriage. That's a different consideration altogether. I don't generally like to have consensus management or, or whatever. What I prefer is most of the control being in one camp. For the most part, and it fits with my own the, own the race course methodology, I like to have a lot of control, but I'm also prepared to take a lot of responsibility. I'll own it if it doesn't work, but I'll also own it if it works. So I don't mind that. And I've also pursued the revenue share model, and I like that model. And I am taking this small percentage in this case. I'm taking a tiny percentage of someone else's business, and they own it, they control it, they are the decision maker and I'm okay with that. I'm actually a great partner because I'm happy for them to be successful. I'm happy for them. And we don't get out of whack easily because why would they? They're in control of their own show. They can take or leave the advice or the resources available to them. 
And if they don't like it, they can end it by buying it out. So basically all these lessons had to happen for me to get to the point where I found a sweet spot business model that not just only works for me, it also works for a lot of the people that I've helped do this. And I think it's a great solution for where I'm at and for my personality type. It does seem to suit you well, but it's just funny that I didn't necessarily connect that you go back way then to where you've ended up today. But I guess that's, I mean, a lot of our mistakes, especially the expensive ones, tend to push us in a direction or to a path. I learned this from my maniac boss, you know, that he would come in and see a Coke can on a desk and smash it across the side of the showroom and scream and shout and then fire someone on the spot. He wouldn't fire them directly. He would storm into my office and he would scream at me, get rid of them, making sure they could hear him. <laughs> and then he'd storm off. But it's like, this is like a road rage accident, right? People don't start hammering on a window with a spanner just because someone cut them off. That's a build-up. They hammer on their window with a spanner because they lost their job, their wife screamed at them, their kid won't return their phone calls, they got a parking fine, and then someone called them up asking for a late payment, and then you cut them off. (laughs) That's the the last little trigger of, of the sequence. So, yeah, I believe a lot of things have to happen for where we get to in, in our life. It's just whether we're conscious of it. And also, and this probably, this is one of the greatest mindset things ever. Mistakes are going to happen, as we learned from a previous episode of mine with Nan Baldwin. It's normal, expect it, accept it, and then tidy up. The NEAT acronym. I love this. It was one of the greatest podcasts for me. I learned that acronym and it, it really changed things for me. But I'd already learned in business and in life that a mistake is just an investment in experience. And when something bad happens, use it as an investment. And I've got a few other mistakes and I think you have too. Let's talk about how you've used the mistake to change your future, Charlie. Yeah. So this was a, a huge one for me. I'll, I'll jump in on this one. So my second mistake is that um, I never really got educated about money early on in my life. And to be honest, I was terrified of it. I uh, had some experiences growing up where my family wasn't in the best financial position. So I developed quite like a fear-based or a scarcity mindset around money. So I'll give you some examples is that often I would be like, you know, if I make money, I'll just save it and hide it away. I'd be reluctant to reinvest it in a lot of cases. So I'm one of those people that you would probably consider like a saver in general. So you have a mattress full of cash. Well, I mean, actually no one knows where I live at the moment. So yes, I did. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll take through what kind of happened and then I'll share some more on it. In business, like I finally, after a few very challenging years, which I think many people have when they're starting out, is I finally started making some money after, you know, the experience I mentioned before. But then my attitude towards it was just to basically save it and squirrel it away. And what I actually do is every dollar I made, I would just pay down my mortgage. So I'd go, all right, and because that felt safe, felt very, very safe. Now, eventually I got to the point where I actually paid off my house. I'd paid off my house by the time I was 30, which is something I'm very proud of in all honesty. It was quite an achievement even then. But it was when I realized the opportunity cost of not getting educated with money and looking at what would have happened if I had invested that, been smarter about it, learned about it, invested in my business more. In all honesty, it's like I only realized how much I actually hamstrung myself. So I hamstrung myself in a big way. And I look at that and go, that period of my life, I could have done a lot more with, but because of this fear surrounding money and not knowing how it works or being educated, 
it just left a lot on the table in all honesty. I wonder though if you would have had the, you know, if you'd had the knowledge to deploy that money, if you might have fritted that money away and then felt even worse. I know some people get suicidal and they lose money. They feel so overcome with grief they can't handle it anymore, which is terrible. I often think about, well, what would be the alternative? The worst case scenario in this case is that you have done forced saving and taken a conservative position and at least you own a house. And one of the big fears that people have is to be living on the street, you know, homeless. That is a fear, especially if you've had an insecure upbringing. But it's an unreasonable fear for most because most of us, if we ran out of money and we ran out of somewhere to live, most of us would be able to find a couch to surf on or would have enough one or two friends to support us with food or even an opportunity to work. So it's probably not a a valid fear for most people listening to this podcast, but it's certainly a fear for some people out there in society. Do you think you would have had the acumen to invest it wisely or could you have potentially made it worse? What I don't like the most about this is like just how much time I was spending obsessing about money in all honesty. It was causing me stress just to actually like have the money and have to put it somewhere. So I didn't like that. Like I would go out, uh, let's say to a restaurant and I'm looking for the cheapest item. I'm trying to book a hotel or get the cheapest flight. And I realized it was becoming quite obsessive for me. Yeah. Like I realized how much of my life was becoming around looking for the cheapest option. And that's where it was like entangled in the idea of like, it wasn't just the paying down the house. It was the, how am I showing up in the world? How am I representing myself? How much of my energy is being drained on trying to find cheap solutions? And I was like, I was quite, um, how can I put it? I would just say stressful is probably the word to use there. How did you snap out of it? I am, um, well, this is it. Oh, this is probably even a touch of a, an embarrassing story nonetheless, but um, <laughs> I... So I went to a marketing event in, it was in Sydney was this marketing event I went to and uh, I'm in Victoria and I realized that the uh, event was at a really nice hotel and instead of staying at the hotel, I actually stayed at a friend's house to save on the money of all things, which sounds a bit ridiculous in hindsight now because I just didn't want to uh, spend it there. But the thing that got me is I went to this event and I found myself actually lying to people saying I wanted to catch up with a friend rather than stay at the hotel. And I was like, why am I saying this? Like, why am I like hiding my like, you know, frugalness? Like if you're going to do it, like wear it as a badge of honor, like don't be one of these people that's like, you know, putting it in the closet there. And what got me was that I missed out on some key experiences at the marketing event. So when I left to go stay at the friend's house, all the other people were kicking on and forming relationships and getting all these things. And that was actually the trigger for me when I came back to do some work on myself. So I did a couple of programs, which I, uh, one of them was uh, Martini's program on money and things like that. And there's some great ones out there, but that really helped me in a lot of ways. That was like the unlocking of my ability to actually like function better with money in the world. Yeah, I've seen this in an extreme. I've talked about this in previous episodes about my multi-millionaire client. I'm easily worth more than a hundred million dollars. Who was, you know, had stained clothes that he bought secondhand. He just couldn't spend money. And when I probed him more about it, he just couldn't. He was just too traumatized by having no money when he was young. But he's got all this money now, and he wouldn't. He always wanted secondhand cars, but he bought. I don't think he actually even bought it. Maybe bought one car the whole time and it was secondhand. <laughs> and I just think it's sad. If you work it through to the end game, right? And I actually had a similar conversation today. I went for a surf with a friend of mine, Michael Maidens, down at Coolum, And it was big waves and both of us took a new board. 
And he said, I love this board so much. It's like it even looks good in my room. And I said, you know, like some people would just hang it. They'd say it's too nice to surf and they would just hang it and I think they're missing the point. Like I ride them. I ride my boards. I want to experience them because let's say you make it all the way to your deathbed and then your board's sitting there on the wall and you never even rode it once. Like how sad is that, that you never got to experience it, you never got to live live what, what it would be like and you can't take it with you. It's done. It's like you just turn to dust. Same with the money. Like, so what? You die with uh, $50 million sitting in your bank account, but you never went overseas. You never drank a nice coffee. You never had avocado on toast. You didn't get to experience the thrill of hearing a turbo booster wastegate or a tire squeal or whatever. Like, I think it's really important to figure out what's the point, as my crazy mentor used to say. What's the point? And when you get stuck in this frugal mode, I have several frugal friends. A girlfriend of my wife used to scrape around the bin outside the supermarket looking for shopper dockets to get a two-for-one meal deal and would always produce a docket or go to the movies on a two-for-one. They lead their life driven by what the best price is, but they miss the whole point of living. It's so sad. Incredibly sad. I'm definitely not, not in that category. To me, I don't mind whatever lettuce costs. If I want lettuce, I'm going to eat lettuce. It's just not the point to chase the dollar. And so false economy comes to mind. Like the crazy people who will drive across the town to save $5 but spend $7 on petrol and not think about it. So just think about that compounded across someone's life. And I should mention is that I also have a lot of empathy for people that go through this, being I was one of them. We were all, I mean, most people were a student or didn't have a lot of money unless you're a trust fund kid, right? I I get it. I'm saying this is the important thing. A lot of the people I'm working with are not in a dire situation where they're about to be homeless and they still hang on to old money patterns that cause them to play small. One more little example, and then back to your thought train there. I had a a client recently say to me, I've got this worker. They're incredible. I think I need to probably give them a pay bump. And he said, they asked for $8,000, but I'm paying them four. And I said, well, hang on a minute. Why are you paying four? Why did they accept four? (laughs) He said, I paid four because it was an old money mindset habit of mine to just be cheap. And they accepted four because they said, well, let's just start and see how it works out. I said, well, and also I said, would you miss them if they left? He said, I'd be devastated. I said, well, there you go. Pay them 8,000, right? Say, hey, we've worked together. It's great. And it's working out terrifically. And I'm so happy with what you're doing. And I want to make sure that you get rewarded. I see this all the time. This person has staff churn on staff churn. Never can hold a staff because he's always trying to nickel and dime your own staff. They're the last people you want to nickel and dime. Completely agree on that point, James. It's very important. Pay your people well if they're good. Yeah. So back to your thought line there, you were just saying that you appreciate that some people are in a position where they don't have the luxury to not you know, count the pennies or whatever. Yeah. So I guess to frame it up or put it in a, a nice little box here is like the regret I have is not doing the work more seriously. Like I didn't believe there was a program out there that could help me or there's some education I could get that could help me. And it turns out there's many fantastic ones. And if I look towards the compound effect of just how many things would have been different if I had started that earlier, for someone today who's listening to this podcast, like they're delaying not dealing with their money mindset or not getting educated on money might be a substantial difference on their lifetime of where they actually end up financially, not to mention the experiences of enjoying money. 
like you mentioned before. Yeah, well, that's it. The money is just a concept or an idea. I'll say one of the programs that I got tremendous value from was Bob Proctor's Born Rich. A wealthy client gave me the cassette tape when I was about 23 or 24 years old. I was at BMW and he gave me a box of cassettes and that was one of them. Other ones in there were Maxwell Maltz's Psycho-Cybernetics. Another one was Tom Peters. There was some Dennis Waitley. I was so lucky that I got the classics access to this stuff. Yeah, you know, this guy used to be a seminar junkie. He used to go to seminars and buy them. I saw him at some later when I went to see Brian Tracy and Tom Hopkins, and he was there in the crowd. He used to run up to the table and buy the stuff. He was very positive and he was giving the good stuff. But I hand wrote notes from that cassette, and I believe it made a profound impact on me. It was talking about lots of things that were easy to relate to, like the circus elephant that grows up tied to a rope and doesn't realise it could just pull the stake out of the ground and walk off any time it felt like it. It just it didn't realise it was even trapped. Or the, the guy who wanted to live on acreage in the city and thought it was impossible. And I ended up doing that. I ended up living on acreage, five acres, just in like 25 minutes from the heart of Sydney for about five years. And most people wouldn't have think that's possible. I wouldn't have thought that's possible. So, yeah, I... I that was the resource I liked. You, you mentioned John Martini, So I think we've shared something valuable there. Yeah. Should we dig into our next one? Yes, please. All right. I'll give you one more here. And then we'll, we can come on, Teddy. I didn't think I had any mistakes and I'm hogging the whole show. <laughs> so I <laughs> so had plenty. All right. So um, this is a more recent one. This is kind of like the start of the uh, recent years events. So I'll, I'll put it that way. I don't want to get any YouTube flaggings or anything on that. But uh, point being is like, I just had a really successful investment property go well for me. So I'd done my first, I'll say proper deal. I was quite excited by it. And then my instinct reaction was, let's go again. Uh, so I just had this huge win. I was in this exaggerated, like joyous state running around high-fiving my wife continually. And I was like, let's go again. Let's do it again. Hired the team to go about this again. And sure enough, the team did what they do and they found this property. And uh, they presented it to me, but what had actually changed is that the world had changed. So in Victoria, we were just going into our second lockdown at this point. And there was some very, very real concerns of like, you know, the future of humanity at this point. <laughs> Which, Looking back, I, I look at my mindset in some of those times and just go, wow, like uh, what happened was intense for many people. But I had this like huge heightened excitement of pulling off a successful property deal which was a very exciting and joyous moment for me, to this incredible low of the world is ending and fear had taken over once again. And I actually passed on the property. So I had gone through this massive emotional roller coaster of things going through it and ended up losing the deposit I'd left on it as part one because you have to hire your whole team to be able to go and find and source these properties and come through with it. And then on the other side of it, if I had purchased that property, it would have done really well. But my big mistake here is that like, I was just purely acting out of emotion. And I feel like that's really, really dangerous. There's been some other times with it. And I, I won't say if they are or are not crypto related, where I might have got emotional and gotten into some things I didn't truly understand either. But every time I tend to act out of what I hear from someone else saying some emotional type of environment instead of sticking to my plan and sticking to more long-term strategic moves, it tends to go really sideways for me. So in this example, there's like layered mistakes in it from the deposit money I lost from getting the property sourced when I probably shouldn't have, the loss of if I did buy it, how well it would have done and it would have done really well. 
And then thirdly is like just along the way of like acting emotionally instead of on the planet. Yeah, I mean, look, it's a forgivable thing and the whole world got shaken a bit with the pandemic, especially in your region. For our overseas listeners, Charlie lives in the most lockdown place in the whole country. The guy in charge of where he lives pretty much caused the biggest mass exodus from that state in history because he's so draconian. And as an outsider to there, I was looking and thinking this is just this is a human rights issue. In fact, I believe it's been proven now that it was in subsequent court cases. So you were in the blackest of black areas, like really depressing and negative situation. They had military sending drones down the streets looking for people outside the house. They were tracking mobile phones, surveilling mobile phone usage to see who's wandering more than a few kilometres. It's bullshit, quite frankly, but I can understand why that would cause you to just to go to ground. It's totally normal. In my case, up where I was sitting, I watched the bank stocks dive and I purchased a substantial amount when basically the share price halved and watched it double. So I used a motion on the other side of the coin there. When I see big events like that, I remember the sayings like most wealth is created during these times um, by the the savvy people. And I bet against the general emotion of the market. If everyone's negative, then there's got to be an opportunity somewhere. It has to be. And I was really pleased with that one. Now to counterbalance it, I basically got some help with someone with some crypto things and I used a very small amount, play money, that I could afford to lose all of to try it because I feel like I'm better to try it myself than to hypothesize on it. And I watched it jump up about a thousand percent. And my gut instinct was it's time to take that off the table. It's time to remove that. Now my friend, he said this is a long play, this is a hold and just leave it if you can. I said, well, I mean, I don't need the money at all. I can leave it. And as it turns out, it's back to about the seed capital I put in. So I didn't even lose on that, but the potential of what I lost was significant because I basically put too much stake in someone else's emotion. So that's secondhand emotion. <laughs> my, uh, I'm not going to say advisor, but my passionate enthusiast in that market was more emotional than I was. And my intention would normally be just to remove it. Same as if I walk through a casino, if I'm going to an event or something, there's poker machines. If I put a dollar in it on the walkthrough between the lobby and the restaurant and I pull out $50, I will cash it out immediately because it's a good return on the investment. So anyway, that's my sort of story. Using banking against general emotion is the first part. And the second part is hooking into someone else's emotion and, and not benefiting from that. Huge. The thing I find so interesting is that the lack of awareness in the moment that we're being emotional. Well, I should only speak for myself here, but in my case, I didn't realize how emotional I was actually acting. That's why whenever we caught up during that period, Charlie, I was checking in on you from a health perspective. I'm like, are you okay? And you're like, I'm I'm fine. And I'm like, okay, because as an outsider, I was looking into your state. I was outraged. And I think you probably remember I was outraged by the behavior the crimes that were occurring made me angry that people were being put through this and that it wasn't being challenged enough. 
and yeah, you seemed fine at the time. <laughs> but it's always good not to make decisions if you're drunk, tired, emotional. We don't have the data or the research or the information to support making decisions. It's probably often better to, to not make a decision. And I can't really penalise you for not making a decision. It was probably a rational thing to do. I still look back on that time and just think that it probably wasn't a wise environment for me to be making big property purchases from with that going on. That's just part of the delusion I was in, I guess. But I think it's still valid. It actually holds true. I suspect some people made decisions or choices that have not panned out well for them that they made during the pandemic. For example, we see news articles like people's have done a tree change or a sea change and they're now finding that they didn't really, they don't like it or whatever. I mean, look, I changed states. I moved states because I didn't like what's going down. But rather than just whinge about it, I'm a man of action. I took action. I moved my entire family to another state. I chased the freedom. And it is, in hindsight, almost a year later, I can say without doubt, without question, it was the most positive life change I've had. It was incredibly good to do. And I don't have any regrets. But in that process, you know, I made a big purchase and I've committed my other properties for two years on leases, et cetera. And like I made a one-way door for myself. It wouldn't be easy to go back. Thankfully, I'm not going back. And it was good, but it could have been not good. So I did make a choice, but I don't think you can really know until later. And this is something I picked up from Peter Drucker, who um, like, you know, he's, I got a lot of his books on my bookshelf there. He said, the power of decision-making is not in the moment. It's not all the things that you consider, all the stats and the research. It's not how quickly you make the decision. It's not just in the data. The real power in the decision, you can't have at that time. It's in hindsight. The only way you can really know if you made a good or bad decision is looking at it down the track in hindsight. Then what do you learn? What do you learn? So I believe, Charlie, you can only now know if that was a good or bad situation and I don't think you could have done much different at the time. Things do appear to have worked out, I will say, and this is, I think there's a continual theme that all of these mistakes or regrets and the framing we put around this is like, they tend to have led to good places for us, James. The best saying that I've ever heard on this, and it, it's so good, I use this a lot, it's that things ho- don't happen to us, things happen for us. I, I don't know who said that quote, but I love that quote. And so every time something happens that's not feeling ideal or that you've have a tinge of remorse or even anger, just recognize that it's happening for us. So even when I was angered and outraged at the treatment of uh, people in your state of Victoria, that helps me have gratitude and appreciation for the freedoms I have, for the fact that I'm not oppressed and I'm not under the rule of what would feel like a dictator, that I am able to walk out my front door uh, and go for a surf and not break the law. (laughs) These things I felt huge appreciation for. So they're all lessons in this tapestry of life. We've covered some financial mistakes. Some of the ones you and I have mentioned could run into the hundreds of thousands. Are they investments in experience? I think so. Has it helped us both make better choices in the future? Absolutely. I concur. Thank you for sharing these with us, Charlie. You're over there at fullstackbusinessowner.com. You did mention a Facebook group. Is that accessible to the public? Yeah, we have the, uh, if you search full stack business owner in Facebook, we do have a community and group of business owners who are looking to build wealth 
it's a, a fun community. We get a lot of fun questions like this one, like what are our biggest regrets? I encourage people to come and join if they want to get a part of the conversation and hear more of these things. Love it. We're going to put this up on episode 953 at com. We'll put a link to Charlie's website and Facebook community. I love your newsletter too. I've been uh, enjoying reading it, especially your contrarian opinions on uh, things that most people think about a certain way. So it's really good and very important. And this is part of what's helped me is to surround yourself with people who have a variety of opinions that come from different spectrums so that you can then decide where do you sit you know, in the lay of the land. It's best not to just go all in on someone else's opinion. That was my crypto mistake. And it's also good not to think you know the answers to everything. You need to have people around you with different opinions. And I think full stack business owner sounds like a, a great format for that too. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks for having me, James, and appreciate the kind words. Let's speak again soon. This is James Schramko. 